All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Those 26 verses are our text this morning. As always, we're going to read them as you follow along. The topic, defeated at Ai, Joshua identifies Achan as the person who has sinned by taking some of the accursed spoil of Jericho for himself. The title of our message, A Case of Achan Identity. (laughs) Verse 1, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua, and they said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it. They'll surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, The tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah and he took the family of the Zarhites. He brought the family of the Zarhites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And then he brought his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, 
Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And then they raised over him a great heap of stones still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Accor to this day. Let's pray together. Father, we understand these true historical accounts were also written for our learning. We know that they are illustrating spiritual truths that uh, occur in our lives here in the New Testament era. And I pray that you would open up our hearts to see those things by the words that are spoken and also just by the ministry of your spirit in every individual person's life here, that we would know and come to know, Lord, what it is that you want us to learn about your grace and mercy in our time of need. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. The rebel gladiator army is defeated and they await their fate. The Roman general announces he will spare their lives if they will identify their leader. Just as he rises and says, I'm Spartacus, so does another and another and another until all of the rebels claim to be Spartacus. In a sense, they each were Spartacus and thus they identified themselves as one man. In our text, Joshua wants to know who has sinned. He keeps narrowing it down until he gets to this one man, Achan. None of the other Israelites identify with him shouting out, no, I'm Achan. Well, you don't expect them to, of course. But what stuns us in the account is that God treated them as if they were all identified with Achan until his sin was exposed. Only Achan sinned when he took of the accursed thing. But in describing Achan's actions, God says in verse one, the children of Israel committed a trespass. And in verse 11, he said, Israel has sinned. God refers to they and them throughout, identifying the nation as one man. Thirty-six soldiers who seem to have no connection with Achan's sin nevertheless die as a result of it. Ah, but there is a connection. There's always a spiritual connection between God's people on the earth. You see this most profoundly in the illustrations used to describe believers of the New Testament era. We are described, for example, as if we formed a single human body. Jesus is our head and each individual believer is a member of his one body on the earth. Another example of being connected. We are described as each of us a living stone in a single spiritual temple that God is building on the earth with Jesus being the sole foundation. Because of this spiritual connection, the actions and attitudes of even a single member of the church can affect, for good or for bad, the progress of the entire body on the earth. 
I therefore need to start thinking differently about my disobedience and sin. No one ever sins alone. What I do affects you and vice versa. The consequences of Achan's disobedience were so severe that I'm choosing severe words to describe them. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, start thinking of disobedience as if you were committing negligent fratricide. And number two, start thinking of disobedience as if you were committing assisted suicide. First of all, in verses 1 through 12, let's take a look at this idea that we're, uh, he was committing negligent fratricide. Now, is there any doubt in your mind that Achan's disobedience was what killed, led to the death of those 36 soldiers? It led to their deaths and to the nation's defeat. Achan was therefore guilty of fratricide of killing his brothers. In Achan's case, his brothers were literally killed. In ours, it's more likely to be a spiritual defeat in the body of Christ. Does the disobedience of one believer always result in the defeat of the whole body? Well, no, thankfully it doesn't. In the case of the Israelites, they created a climate in which defeat was more likely. That coupled with Achan's disobedience became a lethal combination. We want to be careful not to create that same climate in our own fellowship. And so let's begin again looking at verses 2 and 3. It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Don't let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people, for the people of Ai are few. Now, the advice of these two spies puts the emphasis on the fighting abilities and the resources of the army of Israel. It is all natural advice. There are no supernatural insights. This is how you and I, if we weren't Christians, would look at the situation and say, well, there's just a few hundred men, perhaps in Ai, two or three thousand of our fighting men can take them. And so let's just look at it from a strictly military strategic point of view. They had just come off of this amazing victory in Jericho where God had a strange strategy to say the least that depended upon marching and blowing trumpets and allowing God to supernaturally intervene. And so this is the direct opposite of that kind of thinking. They do the math and they think that a superior force of two or three thousand cannot possibly be defeated by the men of Ai. God gives us abilities and he gives us resources to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are never to count on them or to trust in them. If anything, God is better glorified when we are small and weak or when we set our resources aside and we come before the Lord and say, Lord, despite our resources, despite our abilities, we're trusting in you. We need you to go before us. And so, though it's nice to have uh, certain resources, we should never begin to trust in them or think that we are superior because of them. Verse four. So about 3000 men went up there from the people, no recorded prayer, no recording of the seeking of the captain of the Lord's host as Joshua did before they attempted to take Jericho. And this was not the Lord's strategy. In chapter eight, verse one, you read God's strategy for taking Ai. He says, 
Take all the people of war with you and rise up and go to Ai. It was crucial that they all be involved. God wanted participation from them all. That's because he was working in their lives as well as through their lives. The victory at Ai was no big deal for God. Uh, In one sense, I mean, God is God. You don't even have to go against Ai. He could have supernaturally destroyed them from a distance while they watched. But God had a plan that they all be involved because he was still working in the hearts and the lives of his people. And the victory over Ai had as much to do with his work in their lives as anything else. Now, one equivalent of this today, let's say in our church, would be to think that you are not needed if it's not your turn to be serving, to think that others can take on the enemy while you simply rest. We are blessed here at Calvary Hanford, always have been, with a high per capita uh, ratio of people who serve in our church. We have more people serving per capita than any other church I've ever been aware of, any other Calvary Chapel, any other church, period. Uh, And it's a great blessing, and it's a real testament to the uh, grace of Jesus Christ working in the lives of his people. And so this is in no way uh, any kind of an exhortation for people to, you know, quit being pew potatoes and, you know, get out of, you know, their, you know, 10% of the people do 90% of the work, you know, and say, well, who does the other 10% of the work? I always wondered about that, you know. I mean, if only 90% of the work is getting done. But anyway, you know, it's nothing like that. What I am saying is that we can sometimes slip into a mentality That, okay, it's not my week to be serving, and so I can kind of relax. I can kind of check out. Maybe I'm there, maybe I'm not there. But, you know, uh, you know, other people are there, and they're, they're on site, and everything's going well. Well, you know, we're still in a battle, and we're all in that battle. Uh, I generally come to church every week. Uh, you know, I think it's important for me. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to come every week and you don't come every week. We don't even have any requirements that people come. We don't even have any membership. And so we're very lax. But the idea that we're getting at today, if you remember nothing else, we are all connected together. Whether you're here or not, when the church meets, you're here and should be here mentally in the sense of, hey, there's a battle going on. There's, we never know who's going to come in that's not a believer. That person who God has been preparing their heart so that they can hear the good news, maybe from the pulpit, maybe from a person, and be led to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know the kind of struggles and battles our brothers and sisters are fighting. We all generally put on a good face. But, you know, some people are just right at the, the ragged, hairy edge of giving up on God. Their marriages are falling apart. Their children are giving them fits. Their parents are giving them fits. And they need to be ministered to. This is war. And we are fighting fierce spiritual foes far beyond the men of Ai. Our, our warfare is against principalities and powers of the rulers of darkness in heavenly places. We all need to have our head in the game all the time. That's the analogy. And so verse four. So about 3000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai and the men of Ai struck down about 36 men. For they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabaram and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. When you engage your spiritual enemies without God's strategy, you lose every time. 
I think so many believers remain defeated against the world and the flesh and the devil because they too quickly abandon the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading and fellowship for some seemingly superior strategy that is suggested by ungodly men with their ungodly philosophies. It might even sometimes be godly men. One phenomenon I've noticed over the years is the, the, the excitement that, that Christians have over the latest book that's been written. Uh, and there's always one, you know, it's very little lull in between books. There's a lot of overlap. There's always the latest Christian book that you have to read. And people, I've read testimonies, you know, online and talked to people. It's like, man, I never understood God until I read this book. This book unlocked God to me. And now I'm a much better Christian because of it. And I'm sitting here looking at my Bible where, you know, God says he had spoken, uh, you know, through the, the prophets and in these last days through his son. And we have all of that in the Bible. And I'm trying to always figure out what is deficient about my Bible that I need the latest book that comes along. I'm not saying you can't read books, read them. I have thousands of books. I love books. I'd have thousands more old books, new books. You know, I just love them. And so it's not about reading or not reading. It's about a perspective that we get into that there's something more or beyond just God's word. God's word takes on a dullness to us. And we have to have this new thing that's seemingly more exciting. And, and so, you know, it, and so we're engaging in a strategy that that God hasn't ordained oftentimes. I don't really get too excited about a book until the author is dead. Because then it, st- it stands the test of time. If you're dead and people are still reading your book, then maybe you had something to say. Maybe you got to the end of your life finishing your race strong, uh, you know, pressing forward to the goal of the prize of the high calling of Jesus Christ. Maybe you accomplished something through the Spirit of God. And so seriously, I mean, I, I think if you're going to, you know, read something, find out, you know, what's going on with the author. And, and if they're dead, wow, you know, they're, they're way up there on the list, you know, and stuff, because there's going to be a new book and a new book and a new book. Let's get into the old book and get excited about that. Uh, because that's where God really speaks to us. In verse six, then Joshua tore his clothes. These guys must have had big wardrobes in the Old Testament. Lots of clothes tearing went on in the Old Testament. A lot of repenting and a lot of torn clothes. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Oh, that we have been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? They fell to the earth. Nothing like a resounding defeat to bring you back to earth, whether literally or figuratively. Even on their faces, their attitudes needed adjusting. Their prayer reads as if it were God's fault, as if God had somehow tricked them. There is no thought in this prayer that the fault might be in them or among them. 
Now, we are never to heap condemnation upon ourselves. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But we should look first to ourselves when we are defeated rather than blame God or blame other people. We should look first to ourselves. And so in verse 10, so the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Not exactly the answer to prayer, perhaps, that Joshua was looking for. Uh, I don't know what he was looking for. Maybe for God to apologize or say, oh, I was busy, you know, over in the new world uh, or something like that. It's a little Mormon joke there. But anyway, uh, so the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Uh, so he tells him essentially quit praying. The time for prayer was before he sent men to Ai, not after. Now is the time for action. You know, occasionally, I, I try and be careful doing this so that I don't stumble anybody, but a lot of times people will say to me, somebody will say, well, I'll pray about it, and I will say, why? You don't need to pray about that. You know, there are things in your Christian life you don't need to pray about because you already know what God wants you to do. And so you just have to do it. There's no prayer necessary. Pray about other things that you need to pray about and do the things that you're called to do. And so verse 11, God says, Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. No sugarcoating to make this pill easier to swallow. You might even say God was blunt. There was a problem among them that needed dealing with. And so God said, deal with it. Achan had sinned, but Joshua and the elders had created a climate within which the disobedience of that one person could bring defeat upon all of them. They started seeing things from a natural rather than a supernatural perspective. They started trusting in their strengths rather than glorying in their weaknesses. Within such a spiritual climate, the disobedience of Achan was amplified and it led to negligent fratricide. It led to the death of brothers in the Lord. Leaders in the church, take note. You need to continue to be led by the Lord each and every time. And all of us need to start thinking more about how our disobedience, however slight in whatever area, might actually affect our brothers and sisters. It might hinder their progress. It might stumble them. It could lead to their backsliding. Now, in verses 13 through 26, start thinking of disobedience as if you were committing assisted suicide. Once discovered, Achan was sentenced to death and his capital punishment was carried out. But there's a sense in which this is more like an assisted suicide. The long process of discovering exactly who the guilty person was seemed to give Achan every opportunity to come forward on his own. If he had, perhaps God would have shown mercy. Instead, knowing he would certainly be found out and executed, he did nothing it was suicide by congregation or an assisted suicide. Why punish his entire family? 
Well, we know from Deuteronomy that God prohibited family members from being punished for the sins of their relatives. It's part of the law. God can't break his own law. And so we conclude that Achan's family was complicit with him, that they knew about the accursed thing. I go so far as to say they should have ratted him out. Yes, sometimes your responsibilities to the household of believers take priority to those of your earthly household. If a brother or a sister is overtaken in a fault, if they're in sin, then our responsibility to the family of God, to God himself, demands that we go to that person and try to deal with that situation, even though we run the risk of putting conflict in our relationship. Now, rather than stumble over whether or not God was being fair towards Achan's family, you should get the bigger point. Your disobedience never affects just you. As I said earlier, you never sin alone. We've seen how it can affect an entire congregation closer to home. It always affects your family. It brings defeat and destruction and even a kind of death home to your family. God went slowly through the tribes and the families and the households, narrowing it down to one man. Achan must have understood that he would certainly be discovered. This long elimination process seemed to be encouraging Achan to repent. You say, well, how do we know that God would have been merciful? God is always merciful. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba and they produced that child, the Lord said to David, I'm going to take your child home. I'm going to kill your child, the child of your sin. And David, because he knew God and he was a man after God's own heart, he prayed and fasted for that child's life until God finally took that child home. Because David understood the judgment of God. He understood what God had said, but he understood more that God is merciful. And, and he believed that while the child lived, there was a chance that God would show that kind of mercy. And so whatever Achan was going through, he must have known that God would find him out and he should have stepped forward earlier. Why put everybody through that situation and wonder? Uh, even though people, you know, even if you're not the one who sinned, you start to think maybe it was me. Maybe I did do something wrong in the battle for Jericho. And it's a frightening, terrible day for the entire nation. Millions of people suffering. Just come forward. Come clean. Now, our fellowship, our congregation, should be a place that encourages repentance and restoration. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Beautiful verse. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I am too frequently asked if our church does church discipline. It's almost become a, a mark of a, that you're a real church if you are regularly disciplining people. And by that, mostly people mean that you're coming in front of the congregation and, and giving a list of people who are in sin uh, that we should be shunning because they're such evil sinners. And, and the sad thing about that is we do church discipline, but when we do it, we see it as church restoration. 
It only becomes discipline if there is a continued hard-hearted refusal to repent. And even then, the goal of church discipline isn't public exposure, it's private reconciliation. You're trying to set a broken bone. You're trying to save a person, not expose them. And so we have to, you know, we have to have this this understanding of God's mercy. And the truth is church discipline is going on all the time in a healthy church. It happens on an individual level between the believers themselves. You find out things about the, the believers, your friends and those that you're fellowshipping with. And you go to them and you say, yeah, I heard that you did this or that you're doing this. Is that true? And then people repent one to another. Uh, if if it has to, it goes in front of the leadership and we deal with that. Uh, usually the, the bottom line is people say, well, how come you never do anything on Sunday morning? Most people are gone by the time you get to a Sunday morning situation. As I understand church discipline in the New Testament, Paul said that guy is still in church. He still thinks that he's doing the right thing. You need to point him out because everybody thinks that his sin is fine and it's not. The idea is to protect the body, not to expose the sinner. And so if the sinner is gone, if the person leaves the body on their own, people who don't know anything about that person don't need to know anything about that person because the goal is reconciliation, not exposure. And so, yeah, we're doing that all the time, day in and day out. You're doing it. You do it one with another as iron sharpens iron, as you pray with one another and have relationship with one another. And we do it as a leadership, as we get involved with people. But the goal is restoration and reconciliation, bringing that person back into the body. Now, Achan, by the way, showed no signs of repentance. He acknowledged his disobedience, but that's all. Repentance is a powerful spiritual discipline. We should practice it more at home and in the household of faith, the church. Is there disobedience in your life? Are you committing some secret sin? If the answer is yes, then you too are committing an assisted suicide because God will find it out and deal with it. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. God already knows about it. Nothing's really secret anyway, but God gives you space sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, gives you space to deal with it privately, just you and the Lord, so that it doesn't explode into your family, so that it doesn't explode into the family of believers, so that it doesn't ruin your family, so that it doesn't hinder the progress of the church. We are God's body. We are God's building. What each of us does or doesn't do affects all of us. We're in the trenches fighting a spiritual warfare for the hearts of lost men and women. We're getting ready to mount a couple of new assaults, Reach Lamore and Friday Night's Light. Each of us is involved, whether we volunteer or not, whether we ever attend or not. There is no time for personal covetousness or worldliness or secret sin. We're in the last days. We're in the final seconds of human history before the Lord comes to rapture the church. And even if he tarries, there's no time to be dabbling with these kinds of things because people's lives hang in the balance. Let's take every AI together and give God his glory until the Lord decides to take us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the lessons that we can learn from the defeat of your people at AI. 
You don't intend for us to ever be defeated, but we're frail. If we say that we have no sin, we're liars. But at the same time, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we appreciate that balance, Lord. And I pray that the one thing that we would take from your word today and and by the uh, teaching of your Holy Spirit is that there is this marvelous interconnectedness between us. That just like our own physical body is connected and all working together as it should, just as a building, Lord, has its foundation and all of its systems, that is us one with another. And, and, and there's a sense, Lord, that what I do affects every one of my brothers and sisters and what they do affects me and that we would want to have the best possible effect in each other's lives and in the lives of others. And so purify us, cleanse us, as Joshua said, that we would sanctify ourselves, uh, that we would repent, Lord, of things that are hindering our progress personally and the body's progress corporately, and that we would be a force to be reckoned with because we recognize our weakness and our frailty and are seeking your leading in all things. Pray for the leadership here at our church that we would never begin to rely on our supposed strengths or experience or resources or any of those things, but that we would daily and certainly when we get together seek you for your fresh insights, for the move of your spirit so that we would be a supernatural people and not a natural people. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. We have some of the greatest food in the world right here. I think, you know, I was thinking about this first service and, you know, they have these shows on television. Uh, We should probably start a show, Top 10 Church Cafe Foods. And, and, you know, I'd be happy to travel uh, just among the Calvary chapels. But I figured, you know, it would be unfair because we would have the top three. I mean, we, you know, we probably, I don't know, I don't know if I put them in this order, but you'd probably, you know, you'd, you'd have the, the chilaquilas that we had not too long ago. And then the ciabatta that we're having today. And then, of course, the, the king of all, you know, cafe foods, the breakfast burrito. I mean, so we take the top three. I don't know what else is out there. Maybe some kind of a stuffed muffin or something at one of the other Calvary. But we're, you know, so it'd really be kind of unfair. Uh, but anyway, if you want one of those things, walk, don't run. Uh, but and no shoving, no pushing. It's a real test of Christianity. Uh, so uh, first service pigged out. I mean, you should have seen the tables, man. They were lined. I thought at one point there was a ciabatta eating contest going on, you know. I mean, there weren't that many people, but all of them had several ciabattas going on at one time. So don't blame us. Blame first service. I'll give you their names afterwards. Hey, we would love to see you tonight. Uh, as I said, even if you're not going to be a regular on Sunday nights, uh, be, you know, you get a feel for what we're doing. We want you to be inviting people to come out on Sunday nights. Take the invites. They're all over the church. And anybody that you know, uh, tell them, hey, we're doing this thing in Lemoore. Uh, and, um, you know, be nice to come on the inaugural run just uh, to see what's going on. May God bless you. May he keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.